Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our two guests, Jessica Fur and Brian Edelman, legal counsel for Dragonfly Capital. We'll be covering how 2023 is shaping up to be a turning point for crypto legislation and litigation. And as a matter of fact, all this conversation will be happening in the backdrop, or rather I should say the grayscale hearings happening in the backdrop of this conversation. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based Layer 1 blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank our guests for coming on the show. Jessica, Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here with you. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. So you two co-authored an article titled Pending Litigation Could Impact Crypto in 2023 and Beyond, which addresses, I guess, four uh, distinct areas of law that you anticipate will set a sort of precedent for the year. Walk me through, um, you know, the origin story of this of this work and why it's important to affirm a venture uh, investment firm like Dragonfly to put something like this together. Well, th- thank you so much for having us. And if I can just say a, a little bit of disclaimer at the beginning, uh, you know, we're, we're here just to express our own views as uh, in our individual capacities, uh, not representing uh, our our employer. Uh, and anything I say here is uh, we say here is not meant to be legal business or investment advice. So do take that with a grain of salt. And just had to get that out of the way, but. Uh, Brian and I, you know, we came on board Dragonfly. Um, we're about a year now here, and for us, it's really important to not only keep, you know, our our colleagues at Dragonfly kind of abreast of what's going on um, on the legal stage here for crypto, 
but also to help, you know, pr provide awareness, um, just, you know, broadly to portfolio companies and to, you know, people who are out there in the world in the space builders understand what's kind of going on. Uh, just uh, important to, to keep abreast of what's happening uh, in the law. Everything I say reflects my employer. <laughs> and I, I was just going to add to what Jess said. Um, you know, Jess and I both have traditional VC startup backgrounds where the laws traditionally don't move nearly as quickly as they do in crypto. So having, you know, both of us having spent about a year now in crypto, it, it seems like not a day goes by where there's not some sort of legal update. So Jess and I thought to ourselves, well, what are the big pending cases that are currently working their way through the court systems um, that, that could have potentially large implications on the industry as a whole? And we figured that this would be a good article for both folks in the industry and, and for our portfolio companies to just understand what's currently going on and what could happen in this upcoming year. Got it. So let's start with the bankruptcy bucket. This was a, you know, I think a lot of people in crypto had a sort of baptism by fire in understanding the intricacies and complexities of, of how bankruptcy proceedings work. What's your view on pending bankruptcy cases and how are they going to shape the way we view customer assets on exchange, for instance? That's a great question, Frank. So I think if you look at the big elephant in the room is really the FTX bankruptcy, right? Um, you know, a, a case where there's an alleged, you know, $8 billion Ponzi scheme, uh, taking customer assets, diverting those assets um, in violation of the terms of use of FTX. And I think what you're seeing is um, bankruptcy courts are, are, are kind of having to, to figure this stuff out on their own. Because there isn't, and this is sort of the theme of, of kind of the legal, uh, you know, what's happening legally in the space is that courts are trying to, are having to make their, come to their own conclusions because there's not top down legislation happening that we, that we would like to see uh, in the U.S. Um, instead, you're seeing more of a bottom up, you know, cases being brought, you know, in, in different jurisdictions and different cases, um, you know, across, across the, the country. And here with, with bankruptcy, the, the question is, you know, if you uh, are a customer of, um, so, uh, you know, a company like FTX or Celsius, you know, do you and you deposit your 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 digital um, assets? Um, is that a is that a custodied asset? In which case, it's your property. It's just held in trust. You don't wait in line in a bankruptcy, or uh, you know, is it considered an unsecured claim? And you have to go into the back of the line with the other unsecured creditors and try to get your money back. It, it, it leads to a different conclusion for you as the as the consumer. And, um, you know, how the how the court will rule in FTX will impact, you know, a, a, a customer's ability to to get back their assets. Mm. And whether or not you get those assets in kind or not is another big question I think people are asking. Right. And so the purpose of bankruptcy process is to try to collect as much of the, you know, of the money, put it, bring it back to the estate and then dispense it out to to the creditors in a sort of prioritization you know, priority meaning, you know, the, fir the first bite of the apple comes to those with collateralized, you know, debt for in the companies, then you have unsecured creditors. And then if there's anything left over, which is a very if at that point, you know, equity holders would get it. So when you have a custodied asset, that the question is, is a part of the bankruptcy estate? Or is it separate? Is it, is it held in trust? Um, mm. and, and, and if that is the case, it's held in trust, you should in theory get that back right away. So and so what are the important variables that determine asset ownership to your point? 
I think what the courts are doing is they're looking at the terms of use and, and the terms of use, we're all familiar with it because we're, we are, we live digital lives. When you go to a website and you click that says, Hey, I do agree to those terms of use. Uh, that's a contract. And in that contract for FTX, for example, it did state that, um, that, you know, any custodied assets were not supposed to be commingled and we're supposed to be to the property of those, of those consumers. And, and so, um, what, what courts are looking at is, and, and you're seeing that's also with Celsius is they're, you know, they're, they're, they're probably going to look at that, that term of use. What was, what did the contract say? Uh, the difference in, in, in you know, and, and also the variables for, you know, let, let's look at Celsius. In Celsius, there were the earn accounts, right? So those were accounts that were, um, according to their terms, again, that contract, those assets were commingled, there was interest on them. And, um, uh, and so the, in, that, in that circumstance where it seemed that title had transferred to Celsius, those earned accounts were considered, you know, part of the Celsius bankruptcy estate. This, the judge also ruled in Celsius that, you know, for, for those account holders whose assets were not commingled, uh, were, were not bearing interest, uh, and they were such small amounts, it wasn't worth going through the whole process to claw those back, um, that would be outside of the bankruptcy estate. So yeah, this is going to be, we're going to see this kind of on a case-by-case basis, what's going to happen, and, and it'll be curious to see what happens with FTX. Brian, do you think there's any aspect of the way in which these bankruptcy proceedings are unfolding that will impact, I don't know if it's it's law per se, but just the standards or the procedures by which exchanges subscribe? Yeah, I mean, I think what this is mainly going to do is draw attention for consumers to to pay closer attention to how their assets are being treated on these exchanges. Um, I think, for example, you know, Coinbase, let's just use as an example, because they're one of the most well-known exchanges. I think a lot of people are going to think, well, how does Coinbase treat my assets? And, you know, are they simply maintaining custody or would this be part of their assets in some sort of bankruptcy proceeding? And I think what it's going to do is is draw consumer attention to such things as terms of service, which I would say 95% of consumers are not reading or paying close attention to. And I think that, you know, companies like Coinbase may be pushed to, uh, to tighten up terms of service and to express to consumers that these are their assets that are simply being held in custody by Coinbase or the like exchange. Understood. Let's sort of, um, let's skip over to regulatory, uh, the regulatory bucket, just because it's top of mind for me after listening to, uh, Mr. Brian Armstrong's conversation with the Odd Lots team, uh, and they asked some very good questions about the nature of of these assets. And it's a question that's hung over the space like a cloud since I started covering it, um, you know, five years ago. Things like you know the Token Taxonomy Act was a talked about thing back in 2017. Just understanding. Um, what the nature of these assets are. And I guess in terms of like the security designation, uh, Brian mentioned, you know, this isn't, this isn't necessarily a, a, a bad word, right? There are some assets uh, that are crypto assets that could be securities, but I'm curious, there's, there's still this tension, right? Where you have, you know, let's say on the whole, most crypto exchanges writ large view, you know, some degree of them as securities, it's hard to peg a percentage, but far fewer than what maybe Mr. Ch- Chair Gensler would, you know, argue or contend. I'd say he'd 
probably contend that the vast majority or 99% of these um, tokens trading on exchanges are securities. But it's curious, you know, you look at some of these cases that you delineate here in the paper, um, you know, Ripple's obviously a big, a big project, but many of the other ones that they've gone after are small potatoes. Um, they're, they're not necessarily projects that, you know, any, I mean, speaking for myself, uh, you know, I've never heard of some of them. Why do you think they're not like going after some of the bigger enchiladas? I mean, I personally think that that's, that's the million dollar question here. And, uh, they pay me the big bucks for (laughs) they, I, I think a lot of people suspect that the sec strategy is to go after the low hanging fruit. And to go after, you know, the smaller tokens that look like securities, smell like securities, and likely are securities. What does a security smell like? Tofu. Tofu? I think tofu. Could smell like tofu, maybe steak. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the SEC, their strategy thus far has been to go after the ones that I would say pretty clearly are securities. Um, okay. but, but as, as Jess mentioned, going into this article, rather than, you know, take a top down approach and kind of figure out a workable way to say what would, in terms of a crypto asset qualify as a security versus what may not, uh, the SEC has kind of cherry picked and just gone mm. after individual tokens to this point. And I think what you're seeing, this cherry picking is, is kind of building together a platform of power almost, right? So if I can if I can win a little bit here, if I can win a little bit here, if I'm the SEC, I can try to carve up some power for myself and try to push myself as the agency to, you know, position myself optically as the agency that, that should be regulating, you know, this, this, new, this new type of asset class. So, and keep in mind, whenever you're seeing these cases kind of come and get settled, you know, it doesn't create a binding precedent. It creates maybe some persuasive... Yeah. You know, persuasive yeah. um, precedent being a, you know kind of a weird word to use here, but it's it's um, it, it, you'll see what you're what you're seeing here is that you know oh, we settled the SEC has settled this case over here, and we're going to use this case in another situation, and mm. and and this kind of kind of is building up over time a little bit um, as a way to kind of I think to position the SEC um, as the as the agency to be regulating this asset class. Okay, that's great perspective on on the agency now thinking about the strategy or the way in which exchanges have operated. And I'd like you guys to weigh in on whether this view is, is appropriate. It seems like while the sec is taking this cherry picking approach, exchanges have their own set of internal uh, parameters by which they designate coin securities. um, And, and Armstrong kind of went through this with, with Joe and Tracy you know, there's security questions, there's, um, you know, they do their own sort of how we test analysis. Um, and so it seems like their plan is we're going to do our own thing until someone tells us not to. And I guess the question there is that's been working for about, I mean, in 2017, Coinbase, for instance, listed, I think five or so assets today. If we were to check the, um, the block data dashboard, we have a, fantastic chart that shows exchange listings um, or rather exchange pairs. So, you know, this is going to be a bit more than the tokens per se, but it gives you, gives you a sense of, of listing. They had 12 uh, pairs on January, 2018 in January, 2018. 
Today, they have 554 pairs. So they haven't slowed down. So it seems like they're comfortable and there haven't been like delistings out of caution. And so to get to my question, it's, it's, will they be able to continue to do this in perpetuity? It seems like there haven't been any dramas as it were. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I I think that definitely makes sense. Um, I think that they will continue doing it until they're no longer able to do it, which may be never. Um, Doesn't it feel like it'll be never? Not to not to be optimistic, but it's just I've been wait. I'm I'm just waiting for the, you know, people talk about the crackdown that's happening. It's like okay, that you know, it's not great that you know from the perspective of Kraken that they can't you know uh, roll out their their staking program, but and there's also you know they're sort of choking potentially, you know, some people view them as choking out the different fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, but a crackdown in my view would, would them coming out would be them coming out and saying, you can't list 80% of these assets, so you need to register as a national securities exchange to operate. And it feels like that's, I mean, is that going to happen? Well, I think just back to your, to, to Coinbase, right? I think, you know, Coinbase does their own analysis and obviously based on their analysis, they have a vastly different view from the SEC as to what qualifies as a security given that you know they list 500 plus tokens that they clearly don't believe qualify as a security. And I think to your point, until Congress gets together and, and works on some piece of legislation that gives crypto companies true and clear guidance as to what types of tokens do or do not qualify as securities, then we'll have companies like Coinbase do their own analysis and you know go ahead and operate based on the lack of current guidance and say, well, we don't believe that these 500 plus tokens qualify as securities and therefore we will con- continue to list them. Jess, it does seem though that once the SEC flexes any sort of muscle, you know, with SEC versus Ripple Labs being an example, the exchanges bend the knee. We saw that um, in 2020 after they announced their suit with Ripple Labs, every single exchange and brokerage firm halted trading or stopped trading. So it seems like even without a, a sort of verdict there, um, the SEC can have some sort of influences influence on the assets that tr- trade uh, in our capital markets. Yeah, and I think that you're seeing these businesses have to make a business call that's you know in their best interest, and maybe they won't they don't want to make that call, but they may they they're looking at the risk landscape and they have to say hey. It's not worth the risk to keep this out, to keep this up. We have to make decisions that maybe we don't like to make just to kind of, you know, to stay in business for the, for the greater good. When do you anticipate we'll get a final answer on, on that case? On Ripple or? On Ripple. I think we're going to get a case. I think we'll get an answer this year, but I think it, whatever the answer is going to be, it will probably be appealed to the Court of Appeals. And then that's going to be interesting to see what happens at that point, because now we're kind of getting into more of a binding, binding land where we get to when we get to a U.S. Uh, we, when we get to a, a, an appellate level court. So I, if you look at what happened in last year with, for example, um, the, the EPA, there's, a, you know, there's a, this a doctrine called major question doctrine, which is, you know, does a, a federal agency have authority um, to, to be regulating certain spaces or to mm. be, you know, do they have a, do they have that authority underneath the, the existing laws? And I think that's, what's going to happen at the next level is we're going to see whatever happens in the ripple case at the lowest level court 
it's probably going to be appealed and there's going there, to, there's going to need to be a, the, the question will need to be answered. Um, you know, does the SEC or the CFTC or whatever agency it is, who has the, um, you know, the authority to regulate digital assets. And if it's ultimately, if a judge were to ultimately rule that XRP is a security, what is, what are the ramifications there for the space? The ramifications is that anything could be, that any, you know, any cryptocurrency probably could be a, a security. And now it's a, it's, it's a different world and we have to kind of, make, you know, assess how token launches work, you know, assess greater when, what is, you know, can a token start as a security and then change into a, a commodity? What, what, what is this asset class? So I think it's, um, I think it will definitely empower, it would, I think it would empower the SEC to continue um, bringing more cases against other 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 projects like like Ripple, um, and I think it's gonna it'll be a, a probably a, a big turning point for the industry. Mm, interesting. And if a judge doesn't, then well, if a judge ruled that, that it was not a security, I think that I think the SEC would still make the appeal, and then it would. I think it mm. will still whatever happens. I think we're going to go to the next level of court to see mm. what's going to happen. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting-edge zero-knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. So you also uh, unpack the NFT landscape and the sort of legal questions surrounding the many unanswered legal questions around NFTs and intellectual property um, and whether these assets can be securities. Um, so unpack 
sort of the cases that you look at as it pertains to that arena? Yeah, so one of the cases that we uh, focused on was Friel versus Dapper Labs. And for those that don't know, Dapper Labs is responsible for creating NBA Top Shots. And under NBA Top Shots, there were these NFTs called Moments, which are mm. basically like video clips of NBA highlights where uh, users or buyers own them as an NFT. And uh, this was a class action against Dapper Labs, basically asserting that these Moments NFTs were in fact securities. Um, and it's, it's funny because since, uh, we wrote this article, there was actually uh, a recent denial of Dapper Labs's motion to dismiss the case where the court basically said, you know, there was sufficient enough evidence for the case to proceed through the court system. Um, and, you know, initially Jess and I were thinking about this case and thinking, well, what are the implications for NFTs as a whole? And there was the potential for this case to kind of implicate all NFTs as securities. But that being said, when you start to, to kind of tick through the case and then you look at the recent failed motion to dismiss, I think you're able to see that these particular NFTs are quite different from most other NFTs. And I think that the biggest differentiating factor is that not only did Dapper Labs create these NFTs, but they also created this whole flow blockchain with its own mm -hmm. flow token. And these NFTs were only able to be bought and trade on this flow blockchain and in this ecosystem created by Dapper Labs. So I think that's a, a huge different, differentiating factor between the vast majority of other NFTs that you can buy on a variety of different exchanges. But, um, you know, this is it's a big case in the sense that it is going to potentially implicate a specific NFT as a security. Um, I think that personally, there is a decent amount of evidence in favor of the plaintiffs here. That being said, I think one of the prongs of the Howey test, which ultimately gets used to determine whether something is a security, um, that prong being whether there are expectations of profits is a, a big question mark. Um, I personally grew up, you know, collecting baseball cards, basketball cards, and I think these are similar in many ways. And, you know, when I was 10 years old buying baseball cards, I, I wasn't buying them with the expectations of profits. I was buying them because I liked them and I, I like these players that, that are on these cards. And I think the same argument can potentially be made for Dapper Labs and for these NFTs that the consumers were just buying these highlights because they liked them and they wanted to own them versus them expecting to make profit off of them. Well, even if they were expecting to make profit, isn't that just one component of how we, would they have to hit those other three prongs? How would yeah, you, absolutely. how would you dissect the, you know, very briefly the, the arguments of both sides, if one side's saying that there's this expectation of profit, what would the other side's counter be broadly to that? Well, I think the plaintiffs are alleging that there is a clear expectation of profit. And one of the things that they're pointing to is Dapper Labs and the various tweets that they made. And some of these tweets were along the lines of, you know, a LeBron James moment selling for $208,000. So I think they were clearly alluding to the fact that 
whoever sold this made a clear profit. Yeah, they probably should be careful with that. Yeah, and I, I think These people need to get lawyers. <laughs> going back to the analogy of uh, baseball cards, like I don't think the company's tops or upper deck were uh, obviously Twitter wasn't around then, but I don't think they were making announcements as to secondary sales and you know the amount of money that collectors were making. So you know I think that that's one of the arguments. Um, I also think one of the prongs of, of Howie is a common enterprise, an investment in a common enterprise. And I think on the one hand, um, the plaintiffs are going to say clearly there was a common enterprise because Dapper Labs, you know, created this whole flow blockchain and ecosystem. And, you know, they're responsible for that whole ecosystem. And I think that, you know, Dapper Labs, they are making the argument that, you know, this is a decentralized blockchain and um, therefore it's not a common enterprise. So, you know, I think that this is definitely going to work its way through the court system. Um, the failed motion to dismiss was simply saying that there is enough evidence for the case to proceed, but it, it was by no means making any sort of determination on the facts. Jess, you want to unpack Yuga Labs versus Ryder Rips at all. Um, do NFTs come with, with normie IP uh, rights? Yep. So this is a case, um, a private right of action between Unilabs and Rider and Rider Rips, and basically what um, what uh, what was what was happening here was the defendants here were basically saying we're we're supposedly scamming consumers by making these fake uh, board ape NFTs um, and 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 using uh, some some of the similar terminology for for the actual NFT itself, and 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 supposedly all that was done, um, you know, in violation of uh, of the trademark for. Uh, for uh, Yuga, and um, you know, I think what's important here is that you know th this is a new asset class, and I think what I, I hope and what we'll see here is that um, you know NFTs creators you know have IP rights just like any other asset class. Um, you know, I think it's kind of unclear with the NFTs that you know what IP rights you have as an NFT owner and an NFT creator, um, mm. and um, I think that uh, it's going to as as kind of the space develops more. Um, I think that will be clearer. I think you're going to see the um, licenses that are on um, on uh, for NFT projects to get much um, much more um, as uh, uh, sophisticated and um, clearer, so that people kind of know what rights that they own. But I think that um, I think it's important that they be kind of, these kind of cases are brought up uh, in, in this space that there's um, when some you know to 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 protect creator rights, and I think that's what's going to happen here. Okay. On the whole, all of these cases, um, if we look at the sort of culmination of them all, um, I mean, in your view, is this, is it net positive for crypto or does it sort of net out? I mean, my personal view is net positive and that's because I think that each of these cases is very specific to a certain set of facts that is not necessarily applicable to the vast majority of NFTs. So, mm. you know, I think going back to Dapper Labs case, I think that initially there were thoughts that, well, if, if these moments are considered, NF these moments NFTs are considered securities, then that has potentially huge implications for the rest of NFTs. But I think when you unpack that case, you realize that it's really particular to this set of facts. So just to, mm. to answer your question, um, I, I don't think these are, huge cases for the industry, generally speaking, but, you know, that depends on, on 
what the court ultimately decides. And it, it really depends on how the court words its decisions and how that can be used against, you know, in future cases. Mm. I'm not sure if there's a good or bad to it. I think that it's kind of, a, in my view, just sort of a necessary process, because I think what you're seeing with all these cases is that important questions are being asked. And you're getting mm. a different perspective on both sides of the cases. You, you're digging deep into questions that don't necessarily have a have an answer that you know that makes sense to everybody. And I think that through through this process of of you know these corp cases and whatnot, I hope that it will you know educate the public, educate uh, lawmakers, understand the nuances of of digital assets, uh, of crypto, of NFTs. Um, and um, there's a lot of really um, excellent you know, lawyers out there that are trying these cases. Um, and important conversations and using all their 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 legal skills out there to to try to you know to fight to fight for their their side and, and to win that argument. So I'm I'm positive. Got it. Okay, let's um let's turn now to uh, Mr. Sam Bankman Fried, the fraud of the industry as as you describe it. What do we know um, in terms of who was involved and what are some of those unknowns? Uh, so I think what we're, I, I like to reserve judgment until we, we kind of go through the whole process. So, you know, Mr. Bankman Freed is not guilty until proven, he's not, you know, guilty unless proven so. Um, but I think what, what we're allegedly seeing is that, that at a very high level, the, the, the folks that were, um, you know, leading this company, uh, Carolyn Ellison, Gary Wang, um, and, and, and Sam, um, you know, were perhaps changing the books, changing the flow of money. Um, the polycule. Yes. Uh, you know, at, at, a, at a massive scale, you know, and I think that's why we're saying it's like the fraud of the industry because it's, it's not as, it's not as big as um, Madoff, um, but it's, it's, it's the largest, I think for, for us. And, and I think important because, you know, I think there needs to be some sort of kind of reckoning and accountability here. Um, I think we need to have, need to go through the whole criminal process. And, um, but I think it's really important that, that there is an accountability for bad actors and bad actions there, you know, I think as an industry where uh, my, my concern is that if there isn't, you know, a, a fair trial, if there isn't, um, you know, natural process to, to find somebody uh, to, to, to figure out what happened and to hold people accountable for their actions, that it will just sort of invite more scrutiny on the industry and, and distrust of crypto assets. And, um, and I think that there's, um, this is a really important to you know to keep following this case and see you know see what you shouldn't do as a as a builder as a founder and and hopefully people will learn from this and um, you know, make sure they put good financial controls in place. Well, it seems clear that it's playing some role in the quote unquote crackdown that's transpired over the past few months. Yeah, I think you're seeing you know some, you know companies like Binance that right, you're probably going to see a lot more scrutiny there. And so that will be very interesting, actually, to see if the U.S. government, um, you know, there's I think there's they're smelling some blood in the water. If they're if they're circling, um, you know, other players out there to see, you know, what, what's going on, what's 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 under the hood. Uh, what are we not seeing? Uh, because, again, the, the, the purview of the of the agencies and whatnot is to protect consumers. And so that's, mm. the, you know, it's an important way. We, we, we all, you know, kind of criticize, the, you know, the different agencies, but it, they're, they're there to, to protect consumers. So it's an important process. Turning to Dragonfly specifically, is there any, are there any sort of policy prescriptions that you have in mind or are you guys actively contributing to any legislation? What's the policy uh, 
work look like for you two? Uh, we are not personally contributing to any sort of legislation at the moment. Um, we are members of the Blockchain Association, so we we partake in you know meetings and calls with the association, and you know we're able to kind of weigh in and give our thoughts on anything that comes from the Blockchain Association. But Jess and I personally, and Dragonfly, we don't we don't at this moment participate in legislation. How is this environment? impacting potentially the way in which the firm makes investment decisions? I think uh, the, the, the biggest thing is just doing deeper diligence and really negotiating uh, traditional governance rights. I think if you dive into FTX, um, at that time, FTX just had so much leverage when they were raising money that the deals were negotiated seemingly on their terms. And there was a complete lack of governance rights that a lot of these VC investors were able to get. And, you know, I think we lead a lot of our deals and it's it's really important for us to one, do as much diligence as possible. And two, you know, when we become major investors in a lot of these companies, we want to have some level of transparency into what the companies are doing. And, you know, we want to be able to vote on certain matters that, you know, shareholders should be entitled to vote on. Um, and I think, you know, simple things like FTX didn't have a CFO, you know, that's something that, you know, we would highlight in our diligence process and, and hope that we can push a mature company to, uh, to have a CFO in place. And those are just a few examples. Where were the lawyers? Yes. Where were the lawyers at these VC firms? Uh, on that's holiday. a great question. That's a great question. Uh, everything goes very quickly in crypto, and so I, I feel for I feel for you know my comrades out there who are who are you know on the battlefield every day. But I think it's I, I think my personal view of this is, you know, I, ideally you know a venture a venture firm investors and and you know founders are aligned in what's in wanting what's best for the company, and I, I hope that like what's best for the company is making sure those there are good governance in place, there are good financial controls in place. You, you, you bring in, you know, a CFO when you're at a certain stage in growth, you bring in the right people as you grow uh, to, to so that you can continue to be, you know, a healthy company and healthy project. So um, I always I always try to, you know, what if I'm, you know, talking to uh, talking to founders, I hope I hope we are always aligned in, in wanting things to keep moving and keep growing. And um, that's 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 ultimately the goal. Understood. Any closing testimony, please? If it please the court, <laughs> you know, Jess and I talk often about, you know, regulation and just how the whole regulatory environment has kind of gone on for the past few years. And both of us feel like the, the best approach would be via Congress kind of putting their heads together and coming down with a, a bipartisan top down piece of legislation. And, you know, rather than having SEC or CFTC regulating via enforcement, I think it would be a whole lot better if the government can go ahead and tell companies, you know, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Now work within mm. these lines. And unfortunately, companies are trying to do what they think is legal and within the boundaries. And then after the fact, they're being told, well, no, you didn't do this properly. Or, you know, you're being held accountable for, for violating this law. 
when they are in fact trying a lot of companies, I won't say all companies, but they are trying to operate legally. And I think that if they were given a bit more guidance, then companies could, could, you know, have a better understanding as to what actions they can or can't take and, and not be told after the fact, well, you weren't allowed to do this. So we're going to hold you accountable now. So that's, that's my big thing is just, you know, let companies know what they can and can't do because right now companies just don't. Fair enough. I think that all kind of all builders need to think of themselves as evangelists for the industry. And, and I think it's really important to help educate the public about how, what, what, what is crypto and how, what it, how does this all work? Uh, I do that with my parents all the time. Uh, They'll get sick of it after a few years. Uh, I, not, they're not sick of me yet, but uh, I, I'm sure they no, will. They will. At, give at, it, at give it three years. They'll, they'll, they don't want to hear it anymore on my side. <laughs> I feel for you, Frank. Fair enough, though. Definitely. I mean, I think it's an important point is to sort of present the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Present the other side and understand what, you know, what is this asset class? What is this? What is this industry? And, and it's important because, as Brian is saying, if we don't have, um, you know, how is law created? It's created by the legislative branch and also by, you know, the judicial branch with case law. So unless there's legislation, you're going to keep seeing cases, try to push the law in a certain mm. direction. So keep talking to people, talk to, you know, you know, talk to congressmen, talk to people, help, un- help people understand what's going on, understand the space, understand the technology, what's unique about it. I think that's just really important for people just to, just as you do in your podcast, just to keep talking about it. And eventually we'll, we'll get there. Fantastic. Well, Jessica and Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Where can our listeners learn more about the two of you and, and what you're both working on tenaciously over at Dragonfly? Well, uh, now that we are a year in, uh, Jess and I are making an effort to uh, try writing a little bit more. So uh, we've recently uh, opened a, a sub stack uh, that Jess and I co- co-host on that we are um, posting articles. So at the moment, we just have one piece of uh, writing, but we plan on adding to this in the upcoming months. And that's called uh, the Lawverse Substack. I love it. Check it out, folks. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you, Frank. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.